Excellent. So if you've got your outlines there, uh, we'll kick into the talk. We're at the very end of Mark's Gospel. And so it seemed appropriate for me to ask the following question. What is the worst ending you have ever come across? Might have been in a book, might have been in a movie. Some of you, it might have been your primary school story where you wrote, and then I woke up. But what is... (laughs) I'm so glad that flew. We did that over in the East. Didn't know whether you guys had better story writing qualities in primary school over here, but obviously not. We all suck. What is the worst ending you have ever come across? Um, I've read a lot of sci-fi. It's one of the things I like to do in my spare time. And one of the endings that keeps coming up again and again, it's this trope that I just can't escape. And I like to call it the, and then everybody died the end. There's something about sci-fi authors. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe they're trying to make some sort of existential point. But they build this beautiful story and they bring in this complex cast of characters and they weave it all together and you're pulled along wondering what's going to happen. And then the end is just a mess. They all just die one by one. Everyone gets killed. The book ends. That is a bad ending. What are the bad endings that you have come across? Uh, Whatever they are, controversial opinion, I think Harry Potter is in one of these categories. Whatever they are, they will all have a 19-year time skip. Come on, guys. (laughs) They all have one thing in common. They don't satisfactorily bring all the threads together in a way that is meaningful, right? You don't just kind of skip 19 years and name your kid Dumbledore and everything's happy, right? <laughs> because it's, it's too neat. But equally, if everybody dies, it's too messy. Nothing is kind of brought in together in a way that actually goes, yes, it makes sense. That's how it should end. Because a good ending brings together something in a meaningful and coherent way. And if they don't, it's a bad ending. Now, a question for you. Do you know what the best-selling book of all time is? Moo. The Bible. Excellent. Uh, Another question. We'll put Moo on the spot again. Do you know what the most shoplifted book in all of human history is? The Bible as well, right? So you would think with that kind of double criteria that of all the books ever written in all the world, the Bible would be the one that does not have a bad ending. Yeah? And, and, and you would think that that's a reasonable assumption and revelation, fantastic ending. Got to throw that one in there. But then you get to Mark's gospel and Mark has a bad ending. It's not that everybody dies. It's not that he wakes up suddenly from a dream, but he just doesn't seem to land the plane. So cast your mind back to, to Mark chapter one. Do you remember how it begins? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's pretty amazing. Like, that's a grand statement and beginning to a story. He doesn't start with some sort of cutesy introduction about sci-fi books and then build to his main point. He just gets there straight away. He comes out, he lays his cards on the table, and he says, I'm about to tell you the most significant, most anticipated moment of human history, and that it's come. God's king is coming. He's bringing God's kingdom. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And so from the very first verse, we are given the expectation that from that point on, we will be watching and we'll be waiting for the glorious coming of the kingdom of God. And even when Jesus dies on the cross in chapter 15, we are watching and we are waiting for the resurrection, that glorious vindication where Jesus is shown to be king and conquer his enemies. But then we get to chapter 16. Have a look at what it says. We'll read from verse 5. As they, the women, entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. It's an angel. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. 
You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. Okay, great, we're getting somewhere. Finally, what we've been waiting for is coming. He continues, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Okay, this is good. We're getting the band back together. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay, cool. So Mark is giving us an expectation of a resurrection appearance of Jesus in Galilee. Presumably he's going to declare something like he does at the end of Matthew's gospel, where he says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by God. So go out and make disciples. And then we look and there's only one more verse. And look at what it says. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb and said nothing to anyone. And you're just like, <laughs> is, is that it? Where, where's, where's the ending? Now, don't get me wrong. The resurrection happens in the Gospel of Mark. We know it. The angel says as much in verse 6. But we don't get to see it. And when we hear about it, it happens in a cave. It's told to three people by an unidentified stranger, and they don't tell anybody. That has got to be the most anticlimactic, disappointing ending to a gospel story I have ever come across. So what's going on? Well, a few comments. First of all, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice that there are some more verses at the end of Mark's gospel, verses 9 to 20. But I can tell you with complete certainty that they are not original, and you should not regard them as part of your Bible. Uh, some of you will have notes there that say the earliest manuscripts do not have these verses, and that's true. And if you were to sit down and read them, you would see that they were noticeably different in tone, in style, in vocab, in content, from everything else that Mark has written up until this point. And so our best guess, what's probably happened, is a scribe has come along at some point early on in the copying process, and he's been just as disappointed with the ending as we are, and he's decided to give us some closure. So he's gone and cherry-picked events from all over the Gospels and Acts and he's put them together and he's constructed a better ending to end it in the way that we would expect it to. So have a look there if you've got it in front of you at verse 20. don't even want to call it a verse, but, but there you go. And this is how he ends the story. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. And so in contrast to the woman's fear and their inaction, the disciples go out boldly and successfully proclaiming the message of the gospel. Great end to the story, but not God's end. And if we don't pay attention to God's end, then we end up warping everything that Mark has done in the gospel so far. So therefore, if we only have chapters 16, 1 to 8, what is it that we do? Uh, well, there are a few theories that kind of float around about why Mark ends the way he does in verse 8. really boils down to two options. Either it was intentional and he's been particularly kind of existential and, and reader trippy, um, or it was unintentional and we've lost the ending or he never got round to finishing it for whatever reasons. Uh, now, I have my own ideas about what's happened, but I'm not going to tell you what they are because it does not matter. And that's because as Christians, we believe that God is sovereign over his self-revelation, both in creation, but also in the scriptures. And because we trust that, we trust that the Bible in the form that we have received it is everything that we need to know God through faith in Jesus Christ and to live a life that is pleasing to him. And so regardless of what happened with Mark's ending historically, this is what we have received from God. And so as far as we're concerned, this is the complete gospel. 
And because of that, instead of trying to fix the bad ending like the scribes, it pushes us to dig a little bit deeper and see why it is that Mark ends the way that it does in God's sovereignty and maybe even discover that it's not as bad an ending as we first thought it was. So, first of all, let's have a think about that. Um, We need to see that as we dig deeper, there are three loose ends that present themselves that need to be tied up. Now, the first two are for Mark to tie up in his story, and the third is for us as the readers to tie up. Three loose ends that we need to address if we're going to understand why Mark's ending is not as bad as it first appears. They're there in your outline. We can follow along. First of all, the two loose ends for Mark to tie up, they're there, there in your outlines. Number one, what happened to the kingdom of God? And then number two, what happened to the Son of Man? We're going to work through each of those in turn. So first of all, let's have a look at the first one. What happened to the kingdom of God? Now, we're first alerted to this question at the end of chapter 15. So if you flick your eyes back there, have a look at verse 42, chapter 15, verse 42, and I'll read that out for you. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. And if we keep reading, we find out that Joseph goes out, he buys some linen, wraps Jesus' body, and he puts him in his own tomb. There's a whole bunch of strange things happening in this little encounter. Uh, Some of them are really helpful apologetically. We find out that Jesus actually died. We later on find out that people cited the tomb. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people might deny the resurrection, just kind of the bottom falls out. Um, But there's other things too. Jesus dies really quickly. Uh, He's put in a rich man's tomb. They're not expecting any of those things. But the strangest thing of all is the person who buries him. Do you notice who it was? It's Joseph of Arimathea, who we are told is a member of the council, the same council that in chapter 14 just condemned Jesus to death. So what's he doing here? We see it there in verse 43. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. And that raises the first loose end. What happened to the kingdom of God? And the answer to that question is all the way back at the beginning of Mark's gospel. So here's where we do some flipping. Grab your Bibles, head over to chapter 1, and we're going to see that the first mention of the kingdom is in verse 15 of chapter 1. Jesus has started to proclaim the good news of God, and he comes out of the gate and he says this, The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so the first thing that we see about the kingdom is that the gospel of God is about the kingdom of God. It's the substance or the content of Jesus' message. But if you have another closer look at that verse, we actually find out a second thing as well. We find out that the gospel is technically speaking not just about the kingdom of God, but about its imminence. It's near, it's coming. And so we see that the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. And so from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we are given the expectation by Mark that the kingdom is just around the corner. And if we stick around long enough, we'll see it. Flick over to chapter 4, because this is the third thing that we see about the kingdom. We see that it's revealed. And so in chapter 4, verse 11, we see there that the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. 
But to those on the outside, everything is in parables. The you is the disciples here, those on the outside, those who aren't in Jesus' discipleship circle. And those parables are only understood if you are given the meaning by God. So so what do the parables tell us? Well, if you keep skimming your eyes down to chapter 4, verse 26 to 32, we see two parables about the kingdom of God. And they both start like a tiny seed. And then mysteriously, inexplicably, they grow into something massive. So the kingdom has humble beginnings, and we see this in Jesus, right? He comes from Galilee, which is like the Perth equivalent of like Armadale. Uh, but but people, people from Armadale, stay with me, right? Because even though the kingdom has humble beginnings, it has a big and glorious ending. So the kingdom is revealed and we see something of its nature. Fourth of all, head over now to chapter 9, verse 1. This is really interesting as you follow the theme through the gospel, because it starts to build a picture for us. Now, Jesus has just finished his famous call to discipleship, to deny oneself and follow him. And he says to the crowds, chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So again, we see that the kingdom of God is near. But now it's going to be coming in this lifetime. And so the, kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God, it's, it's, it's accelerating. It's picking up some pace. And if we cycle through the next couple of chapters, we get a sense of this expectation because what happens in chapter 9 and 10? Well, the emphasis of Jesus' teaching changes and it's about preparing people to enter the coming kingdom of God. And so in chapter 9, verse 47, we see a warning against sin because sin will prevent us from entering the kingdom of God. We hit chapter 10, verse 15, we find out that the kingdom is received, not earned. And then if we keep reading, still in chapter 10, we get to verse 23 and 25. This is the rich man when he comes to Jesus. And we find out that the kingdom of God is really, really hard to enter if you're rich. And so we're being prepared to enter. And then we keep reading chapter 11, verse 10. We see another claim to nearness. What's happening? Well, Jesus enters Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that the Christ will come to his seat of rule in Jerusalem on a donkey. And we see in verse 10, it's up there on the screen for you. The people around him as he ascends to Jerusalem yell out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So now it's not just in the lifetime, this lifetime anymore. The king and the seat of the kingdom are coming together almost now. And then finally, the last kind of verse, which is also there for you. Chapter 14, verse 25. On the night before he dies, he says to the disciples, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, wine wasn't a sometimes food in the first century Israel. It was a staple of the diet. And so everything that we are seeing here is an expectation that the kingdom is just moments away. And that brings us to our final reference to the kingdom in Mark. It's in today's passage, chapter 15, verse 43. And what we are expecting is a declaration that the kingdom has come. But what do we see? We're still waiting. And so that's the first of the three loose ends. What the heck happened to the kingdom? It's just fallen off the radar. Now, there is an answer, and the answer is found in tracing the second loose end, which is this. What happened to the Son of Man? 
Now, this one isn't as obvious as the first one. In fact, it's not in our passage. I'm kind of borrowing my knowledge of Mark to kind of make sense of the fact that this is also a question that's kind of floating there because we have no direct reference to the Son of Man in chapter 16. But we do get a hint of it, I think, when the angel says in chapter 16, verse 6, that the women are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, there's nothing fancy about referring to Jesus like this. It's just a means of distinguishing him from all the other Jesuses that were floating around the place. And there were a few. So, for example, I'm not the Matt Smith from Dowkeith Anglican. Okay, just want to make that clear. There are two of us and I'm not him. I'm the Matt Smith from UWA Christian Union. And that's all that's happening here when the angel refers to Jesus like that. But that's not how Jesus refers to himself like that in the gospel. What does he call himself? Well, he calls himself the Son of Man. And if we track that theme through Mark, it helps us understand what happened to the kingdom and helps us make sense of what's going on with Mark's ending. So are you ready for another romp? This one's a little bit simpler. There's only three movements in the life of the Son of Man. Uh, and in case you're wondering, I haven't done any of the hard work. I've taken these all from Dave Mitchell's master's thesis. So today, Curtin serves UWA. Thank you, girls. Um, let's jump right in. Let's have a look at the first movement. This is the Son of Man in Mark. I had to get off the, the screen quickly so you didn't take a picture and kind of put that on the internet. This is a private space, okay? First movement in the life of the Son of Man is his exercising of present authority. We see this in a couple of places, most famously, chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus heals the paralytic, but that's not the point. He turns to the scribes and the chief priests and he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. If you flip over again, chapter 2, verse 28, you'll see something similar. The disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath and Jesus says, no, they're not, because even the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We see this again and again in his healings, in his casting out of demons. The Son of Man has present authority. But then we're introduced to a second movement as we keep reading through the gospel, the movement of his imminent suffering, death and resurrection. Now, we see this in a number of places in Mark, uh, but the three that are the most obvious are the three predictions that Jesus makes about his coming death. And so we read there in chapter 8, verse 31, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, we see that again in chapter 9, verse 31, again in chapter 10, verse 33 to 34, the same pattern with some different details, but they all kind of resolve down to the Christ will suffer, he will die, and he will rise again. Now, note this as you look at those predictions, because normally these predictions are called passion predictions. You know what passion is? Passion kind of refers to Jesus' suffering and his death. But these are actually more accurately called passion and resurrection predictions because look at the trajectory of the Son of Man's destiny. It doesn't end in the grave. It comes up out of the grave with him rising to new life. Why is that important? Well, because of the third movement. The Son of Man starts with present authority. He undergoes suffering, death and resurrection from the grave. But his destiny ends with his final glory. So if you've got your Bibles, flick back to chapter 8, verse 38. And again, this is in the call to discipleship. Right at the end, Jesus says this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
If you keep flicking to chapter 13, verse 26, you see something very similar. Jesus here in chapter 13 is teaching about the end of history. And he says there in verse 26, At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Next verse, to collect his elect. And then the third reference under this heading in chapter 14, verse 62, this is when Jesus is on trial. He's before the Sanhedrin and he confidently declares to them that they will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One, literally at the right hand of power. So we're seeing power and glory come up and again and again and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, it should be clear as you look at those three references up there on the screen that this final glory, this final coming is yet to come. And so it leaves us in this kind of weird middle space when we look at the the life history of the Son of Man between the second movement, his life, death, resurrection, and the final movement, the third movement, where he comes in final glory. And so we need to work out what's going on with the Son of Man. And the answer to that question, I think, is in two of the references that are currently on the screen. Because what's something that we notice about two of those references? We see the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. Now, question for you, where else do we see that language in the Bible? Well, we see it in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. Going to roll along with this? I know it's a lot to take in, but we are going to pull those strands together. We're heading for a good ending, okay? This is what Daniel chapter 7 says. And it might interest you to know, this is one of the places in the Old Testament where we see both the kingdom of God and the Son of Man come together in a perfect ending. This is what it says. Daniel seeing a vision in the night and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, there are a lot of similarities here to the Son of Man's final glory. But there is one key difference. And that's the direction that Jesus, the Son of Man, is travelling. Don't know whether you noticed that. But in Mark, the Son of Man comes from heaven to earth. He's bringing the kingdom. But here in Daniel, he comes from the earth to heaven to receive the kingdom. So what's happening here? Well, what we're seeing here in Daniel is the trip that the Son of Man makes earlier before he comes in his final glory in that third movement. It's the trip that he makes when he is raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the throne of God and given the kingdom of God. So why is this significant? Because if we follow those two loose ends all the way to their ends, we learn that despite appearances, the kingdom of God has come in the resurrection of the Son of Man, because it's at his resurrection that he receives the kingdom. Jesus is now Lord, and everything that was promised, all of the expectations about the kingdom of God in Mark that Mark has given to us, far from being undone, they've come to pass. God's king is reigning, and the kingdom has come. And of course, that leaves us with one more loose end to tie up. And it's a big one. Because if this is true, 
and the kingdom of God has come in the resurrection of the Son of Man, then that makes the ending of Mark even more disappointing, doesn't it? Because everything that Israel and the world has been waiting for, for centuries, it has finally arrived. And we can throw off the shackles of sin and death and receive God's pardon rather than his judgment simply by entering the kingdom of the Son of Man that has come. It is momentous news, not just for Israel, but for the world. And yet, shockingly, verse 8, no one is telling it. Everybody has run away. And the only people who are loyal are the women, and yet they've been commanded to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. And they flee. And they say nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that they do eventually go and tell the disciples. And if we read the book of Acts, what we do see is the glorious march of that glorious message as it goes throughout the whole of the known world. But Mark ends here on a note of fear and inaction. And so the number one question we are left asking is this. Who will go and tell of the resurrected Lord Jesus And whether or not Mark intended to end this way, it calls us as those who have received Mark's gospel in this form to respond. Who will tell of the resurrected Lord Jesus? Answer, you will. Throughout his gospel, Mark divides responses to Jesus into two camps. It's just two. And you've heard them before. You either respond in fear or you respond in faith. And what we're implicitly being called to do here is to respond in faith, to go out and do what the women didn't do because of their fear. We're to go out into all of the world and preach the gospel. And so as we come to the end of this semester and we head towards the end of this year, I want to encourage you to make it a good ending. You're about to hit three weeks of stress and then three months of absolute luxury. I'm very envious of you. And in both of those periods, you can prioritise your marks and you can prioritise your leisure, but Mark tells you to prioritise the news. So have a think. In the next couple of weeks, in the next couple of months, what opportunities can you create to share the gospel with the people that you know? I've already heard from one possibility from Eunice. You've got the tools. You've got Mark Uncover. You know Mark. You've got the situations. You can invite them to church. You can invite them to a carol service. Invite them to a hang with your Christian friends. All you need is to decide whether or not you'll do it. And I actually want to say, just a bit provocatively here, it's actually really easy. um, We were at the AFES staff conference in the middle of the year. We had an ex-missionary from Namibia in Africa talk to us. And he told us the number one thing that he learned in 10 years of preaching and teaching the gospel in Namibia was how to get into a conversation about Jesus before the taxi driver hit third gear. Do you want to know the secret? It went something like this. Oh, hi, my name's Matt. Hi, my name's Sam. Hey, have you heard anything about Jesus? That simple. Awkward? Absolutely. But you can dress it up. You can make it a bit more natural. You could do something like this. This is perhaps to one of your friends over the summer. Hey, Sam, I've been thinking about this for a while, but there's something really important to me that I wanted to talk to you about, if that's okay. If you don't know, I'm a Christian, and I think that Jesus is the most significant person in the whole of human history. 
Can I tell you a bit about him? That's not weird at all. It's actually genuine, kind. And I think the majority of people would go, yeah, okay. Might not lead to crazy conversion stories, but that's evangelism in practice. It is that simple. Not third year, not three seconds, maybe 10 seconds. Not as easy as I first told you, I'm sorry, okay, I've misdirected you. (laughs) But it really is that simple. We spend so much time waiting for the right opportunity to have the pre-conversation that leads to the pre-conversation about when we raise Jesus so that three conversations later we can ask them, hey, did you know I'm a Christian? Right? We waste so much time trying to get to Jesus. But if the kingdom has come and Jesus is risen, we don't need perfect opportunities. We don't even need skills. We just need conviction. The conviction that the news that we have received matters more than our ability to preach it. Because we know that even through our fumbling attempts, God can bring unruly hearts to repentance. See, I used to go to church with a guy called Pat, excellent evangelist. Someone he was evangelizing became a Christian. And do you know what the first thing that Pat did as he heard this guy tell him? He booked a time, like within the hour, to go down to the local train station so that they could do some walk-up evangelism. Right? <laughs> This guy had just become a Christian. He hadn't done a Vange team on campus. He, he, he was not ready. Now, now, would you do that? I don't think I would do that. But do you see the point, right? Christians who have received the news share the news because it is so momentous that it doesn't matter how they do it. And Mark, in these final verses, declares to us that the kingdom of God has finally come in the resurrection of the Son of Man. And he leaves us with that third loose thread and an invitation to make the story have a good ending. Who will tell the news? Will you?